This is the Bushwick Variety Show, and I'm Alex Stevens III. Greetings, neighbors, friends, citizens of the world, and conscious beings of all various types. Thank you so much for listening to the Bushwick Variety Show. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're hanging in there. Uh, This episode features Neil Tyrone Pritchard, who starred at the beginning of this year in Halfway Bitches Go Straight to Heaven, presented by the Labyrinth Theater and Atlantic Theater Company. It is uh, Stephen Adley Gurgis' newest play, and it was one of the favorite things that I've seen so far, and Stephen Adley Gurgis is one of my favorite playwrights, so it was a real pleasure to see that. And also, this is 90 days for me today of uh, not drinking, and I know uh, Neil through the theater community here in New York City, and I've actually also been working with Neil since the beginning of the year um, on not drinking, and I go to the meetings and stuff like that when I can, and yeah, I've I've decided not to drink. Uh, just I want to do more creative things. I want to show up fully, and I'm super grateful that I am able right now to be creative in this time that I have, that I'm not working as much. I have a lot of creative projects I'm working on and I am glad that I'm not hungover and I'm able to be present and do those as much as I can. And I know that I haven't put out (laughs) um, a new podcast since the one I did right kind of a couple weeks ago when everything was getting really serious here with the pandemic. Um, But I have been busy doing some other creative things you can see online on the social media and whatnot. So that's been a lot of fun. And now I want to get back to this and I have a number of episodes, like I said, in the can Um, and this one I've been holding for a while. So now's the best time, you know, as any other to go ahead and release it. So Without further ado, this is Neil Tyrone Pritchard, and uh, he's on the leadership board of the Labyrinth Theater Company. He's a great actor, great singer as well, and yeah, just a just a generous human being. And I'm really glad I'm getting to know him over the past few months, and I'm proud that he is a member of the New York acting community. So, Neil Tyrone Pritchard. Let's have a conversation. All right, and we just go. Okay. Neil Tyrone Pritchard. Did I say that right? It's Pritchard. No, it's Pritchard. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I just say it, you know, at the beginning to get it right. Um, so there's not like an episode where, you know, I'm doing all the intros <laughs> and then I get an email and it's like, you know, you said my name wrong over and the over. The whole and over time. Again, you know? so. <laughs> Fix it. But yeah, man, how you doing? I'm good. Um, I like days like these. Just like chill, kind of rainy. I'm a fan of the cold. I hate sweating. So this is perfect day to be out in Bushwick. Have you been to my hometown, Seattle? No, never. Because, uh, yeah, this is like a Seattle kind of day. It's not raining too hard. That's like the thing people don't understand. Yeah. Like talking about like New York rain and those heavy rain days. They're like, is it rain all the time? And it's not that downpour usually. It's like misty. 
Yes, I have a friend who came in from Seattle. He moved back like a couple months ago. And he's like, Seattle's kind of gray Mm -hmm. and rainy. Yep. And I was like, ah, my dream. Yeah. (laughs) Amsterdam's kind of like that. Uh, London, I hear, is kind of like that. Uh I don't know London. (laughs) (laughs) um, Laura's from Amsterdam. Okay. And we were just talking about Passing Strange, um, where he, a big portion of that takes place in Amsterdam, Amsterdam, which... I think had an influence on me, maybe. <laughs> um, and you, uh, we were talking about plays. Like, that was definitely, like, one of those special plays. And you just yes. finished a very uh, special production by one of my favorite playwrights, Halfway Bitches Go Straight to Heaven, Labyrinth Atlantic Theater. Uh, yeah. Stephen Adley Gerges. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. That was... I mean, you saw it. It was an epic piece of theater. Um, It was sort of an indictment of the halfway house system in New York. Um, What can I tell you about it? It was a cast of 18 and a goat, so 19. Uh, (laughs) The goat got all the press. Um, And it was a collaboration between Labyrinth Theater Company and the Atlantic Theater Company, who was, they pretty much... They've championed Stephen's work for the past couple years while Labyrinth has been in sort of uh, a rebranding, redeveloping period. So, um, because it's interesting, because knowing you and knowing Mike, and then it kind of occurred to me, kind of when that production was happening, like I've moved to New York 12 years ago. It's been a journey, but it's weird some things that take like a decade to like figure out but Stephen Adley Gurgis like from the time I read Jesus Top the A-Train and then figured out kind of what he was doing like basically what I love about his work is what I don't love about Friends and certain Seinfeld (laughs) is these shows that take place in New York or they take place in modern America and like I you know, like there's a new there's thing. There's no excuse. Yeah, there's no excuse. Um, but yeah, he writes New York, which is a very diverse place, and he writes very diverse characters. But they're not. None. Nobody's a caricature either. Like they're actual three dimensional people. Yeah. Um. So I've loved his work for that, and then. I think I heard in passing about Labyrinth, and I know Philip Seymour Hoffman and him, right? Like, did they co-create it? Like, I don't know the full history of... No, no that is the... That's the co-opted story. Right. So, <laughs> let's set the record straight Let's here. set the record straight. So, Labyrinth Theater Company started in, I believe it was 1992. And I always like to say that, like, Labyrinth started out of protest. Mm-hmm. So, there was a production on Broadway. I'm not going to drop names because I want to work. Um, there was a production on Broadway, and I believe it was a Colombian or Cuban playwright. The play took place in South America, and they cast all white people. Mm-hmm. And when they were challenged on their casting decisions, they then said that they couldn't find any Latin American actors in New York, which is a complete lie. Now, like to give context to that is like, 1992 in New York in Living Color was on TV like 
New York Undercover was on TV. The movie I Like It Like That was like, and so like the, to give the excuse that there are no like, like in any time in New York in the last hundred years, that there are no Latino, uh, Latin actors in New York is ridiculous. So I think it was a group of like seven or eight of them got together and decided that they would create this artistic gym where these artists would sharpen their tools and go out into the world. And basically, the I don't think the intentions were, was ever for it to become a production company, but more to be like an actor's gym mm -hmm. and uh, a place where people could, when they needed these actors that didn't exist in New York, there was a one-stop shop where they could come and like grab the dopest actors in New York. Um, that was 1992, and I believe Philip Seymour Hoffman came in. Stephen Adley Geerges became a member two years after they officially became a company, and then Philip Seymour Hoffman might have come in five years into the journey. So, and then kind of what happened from there? Like, how did that? How did it grow from a gym to a production company? And is it is there still the gym aspect or? And that's an interesting conversation because, like you said, there's like a shuffling happening now. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a short amount of time before they left from being primarily a gym to be facilitating as both a uh, gym and a production company where the people inside the company created work for the other people inside the company, which is how Steven started writing, actually. Um, he came in as an actor and then he wrote a scene or a play and someone was like, that's really good, continue to write and the rest is history. Um, now it's, I guess in this, in this period, we're acting as a production company. Um, and just like development of work as well, we have something called the Barn Series. It's a part of our pipeline and uh, the Literary Committee of Labyrinth, which is a volunteer, everything is volunteer at this moment. Um, they get together through submissions from company members and outside submissions, and they pick a bunch of plays that we then take away for our yearly retreat in Indiana, um, which is our, our yearly retreat, our summer intensive, is a co-pro with Pegasus Pictures, which is a local production company out in Indiana. And we go for 10 days and we workshop those plays. And from those plays, we pick seven plays to have a reading in January of the following year, which more development happens then. And then from there, we pick what our next production is going to be, which mm -hmm. should be announced soon. Nice. <laughs> Exciting. Uh, so how did you get involved with this company? So I, how did I get involved? I wanted to say something witty. Um, I'll say this, that like, I am a native New Yorker. I'm from Staten Island. And um, for the longest time, my desire was to pursue musical theater as a career. Now, in when I graduated from high school, 2005, musical theater then looks nothing like what musical theater looks like now. Like there was no Hamilton. Mm -hmm. There was no Passing Strange. There was no In the Heights. And so there was a lack of diversity of both like ethnicity, size, like, you know, 
sounds. They just wanted these like classic voices or they wanted everyone to sound like they're from middle America. And that was not my thing. Mm, me neither. Yeah. You know, like, but I did something pat on my back. I did something interesting is like I trained or I did primarily classical musical theater. So my desire was like to, to go out and do these classical musicals looking like what I looked like mm-hmm. and being from where I was. And, you know, for me, my goal has been my whole career to like bring theater to the common man, right? Like if someone sees someone that looks like me on stage, that means that like they can also do the same thing. The industry didn't want to hear that. They wanted me to be like taller and skinnier and they wanted me to like sing more R&B than I did operatic. And that's just not what I was interested in. Um, And so I was on my way out of the business and a friend of mine invited me to a labyrinth reading. And it was the first time that I saw theater where people looked like me. Like they looked like real people. Like they were beautiful theater people, but they looked like New Yorkers, right? They weren't transplants from other places. They didn't have that like musical theater sheen, you know, not everyone was like over six foot. Like it was, it was beautiful. And so I, at the time Labyrinth had uh, an education department that had workshops year rounds that had master classes. And I jumped on board with that and got to know everyone in the company. And I realized how much of a gift it was that this just didn't exist anywhere else. Like there were other, there are other theater companies in New York that sort of imitate the lab model, but with less consistency. And I wanted to go to the origin. I wanted to go where it all started. And so I just stuck around for a long time. I became a house manager they let me read stage directions and then they're like oh my god he has a voice he can act and then they eventually let me act and then you know i started to produce things and then after eight years i became a member that's awesome though congratulations (laughs) thank you so how long so how long have you been an official member three years three years Three years, and as soon as I became a member, they like handed me a project to work on. I produced their first play um, at the Cherry Lane Theater with a team of two other brilliant artists. But yeah, they put me to work. <laughs> and then, because just kind of being from like observing it from the outside, what, how does that work with like Atlantic Theater? Like, what do, how do they work, and how did that collaboration? kind of how does that happen well the atlantic theater company once again we're in a period of transition and the atlantic theater company had a space they had finances they also had the willingness because they won a pulitzer with between riverside and crazy five years ago Mm -hmm. and so it's like hey i guess you know they're like let's do another one why not and so they kind of put the bill for the production and housed us and took such great great care of us and were you involved with halfway bitches like from from like the beginning like from readings how did that kind so of go? halfway bitches 
I think started three years ago at an intensive. Stephen was just like, I want to write. I just want to write something that's not the project that I'm being paid to write. So he wrote two short scenes and Halfway Bitches was one of them. And it looked nothing like what the play looks like now. And none of the characters were the same. And then Labyrinth was looking for a farewell project for John Ortiz because he's uh, stepping down um, as artistic director. We're transitioning a new person in and there was this one scene and the premise was intriguing. And so we asked Stephen to write it out and he, he decided to do it. And what he did was he picked his like people from the company or people that he met along the way whose voices inspired him. And so every one of those 18 actors had parts specifically tailored to what it is that they do best, which is a dream scenario. Yeah. Right. Like that doesn't happen. And when it happens, clearly magic, you mm -hmm. know. So what's going on now for you? And like, what do you kind of see? Like, what do you see the transition being um, for for like the lab? Well, we have a production coming up soon. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about lab first and then go into my spiel about my life um we have a production that's going to be announced soon i'm excited about this one because it i feel like it returns to lab's initial mission which is like bringing voices that we don't normally see in the theater in the like out into the world and it's a new young playwright and it's a smaller production like they're not 18 people on stage like halfway bitches they're no animals um, but it's a story about people of color who are in love. Full stop. Mm -hmm. Why is that revolutionary? Because like, you know, there's no, there's no big drama except that they're in love. They're human beings. And that's like the desire of my heart is just to tell these stories where like things are not blowing up and like no one's arrested and. There are no drugs involved, you know, like not these archaic stories that we've seen over and over again that perpetuate and don't move anything forward. And this play, I think, does that brilliantly. So it's something I'm excited about. And I can't say the name of it, the playwright who's in it, because it's not been announced yet. But like, check the Labyrinth website, get on the mailing list. It's something that you really want to see. Two brilliant actors, amazing playwright, amazing director. I'm excited. That's a conversation I've been having recently. I mean, it's a recurring conversation, but kind of Hollywood's fixation with slave movies. Mm. Um, like one of my big ones, which I still like, of course, while I, as an artistic piece, can appreciate aspects of it, but the same year that Fruitvale Station came out, 12 Years a Slave came out. Oh, bless. And I feel like one of them is Hollywood's way of feeling good about itself. Like, meaning, and it's not just Hollywood, but it's like, I think, the collective U.S. idea of like, oh, look how bad things were. And I was like, well, there's this other movie about the legacy of that stuff that look was how happening. how bad things are now. Yeah, Exactly. Um, don't dress it up in period costume and hire British actors. Mm -hmm. Let's not do that. Yeah. yeah. 
we're here. Yes. Yeah. Not not I'm not hiring I'm not knocking hiring the British actors because I have my particular feelings about you know about that as well. Yeah, I have my particular feelings about that as well, which I'll go into, but yes. Fruitvale Station and Twelve Years a Slave, I think both of them are great pieces of art. I think both of them are relevant. I also think both of them play into this poverty porn. Yes. Right. Like, like black suffering. Oh porn. my God. Like, yeah. can, can I have like, can we not have, and I think it's happening, you know, it's happening here and there and just not enough for my liking, not fast enough for my liking. You asked about where I am and I'm one who, no matter what anyone says, loves to stay on task and on mission, right? And I've been very clear about that since I became an adult, only because I grew up in Staten Island in predominantly white spaces where I had to shapeshift and I had to be better than, and I had to like overcompensate. And so now that I have a little bit more personal power or awareness of it, um, I, Really, I have a I have an issue with settling for what people tell me I should have. And so currently, you ask what I'm doing now, breaking into the film and television world is I'm being told that I have to settle. That in order to fit someone's idea of what blackness is, someone who's not had the experience, but something that's like appeasing to the mass media, I have to like get the right haircut. I have to be the right size. All of those things that I like encountered when trying to do musical theater early on. I'm now at 32. All of those things are coming back in these rooms where it's like, well, we'd sign you, but we're not so sure you're willing to compromise or your beard's not presentable enough. What does that mean? What does that mean? In... 2020, what does that mean? That my beard is not presentable enough. When there's like a wealth of narratives where my beard is just like, I'm quirky. That's what I sell. Mm -hmm. You want me to be the lawyer, doctor, security guard. That's not what I want to do. So that's where I am. Yeah. Fighting the system. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I, And it's an interesting one because it's not, like what people are saying is not true necessarily either. It's like what like that. Oh, if you if you get the right haircut, you get this. That doesn't mean anything ultimately because I this is the second time I had dreads, and the first time I cut them thinking like, oh, I'll be more versatile or something marketable. Um, yeah, and and I have been like accessible, I might, and I'm I might cut my hair this year honestly, but it's. I'm at a point where that just might. <laughs> As I was coming here, I was thinking about your dreads, and I was like, "Yeah, mm, yeah, keep them." But it's just twelve. But, it's twelve years now, and so it's like there's a point where, yeah, I just we'll see. We'll, I, I say that every now and then, and then no, it's live been your live years. your life. Do what do what makes you happy, but also like my thing is, I hate, I regret when I do something, and I know that it's not my heart's desire, but it's based off of. You saw my beard. It's like long, luscious, moisturized. Someone said something to me and I went home and cut it off. And I was like, 
yo, I feel like you just made a step back. Mm -hmm. Not because you cut the beard, but because you allowed someone who doesn't quite get it to like infiltrate your thought pattern. And that's like the constant struggle of lots of people in this country. But me being a black man, that's like a struggle I've had all my life. Mm -hmm. Because these rules were created by my like West African parent my West African parents who like wanted to keep me safe and keep me alive. And we're now finding out that those things don't apply. Yeah. Right. Like no one's going to know I'm well-spoken when I'm like shouting for my life. Yeah. No one's going to tell what shoes I'm wearing if it's like at night. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what like also I found when I cut my hair for that reason before is it didn't, ultimately do what i thought it would um kind of had an identity crisis at that time (laughs) um so this time it's kind of knowing i i won't it will like what would happen is i wouldn't stand out as much actually um but i'm still i don't think that i am a generic person nor do i want to be and so it's kind of knowing that i am who i am regardless of the furnishings and that's that's like my big thing with i think being a person of color being a black person in acting in the world there's an interesting parallel there but one of the big things we have this elect like election coming up and one of the things that really pisses me off every time is like this candidate doesn't have black support now if it's now, if it's this candidate is racist, and that's why, that's one thing. But kind of, there's been this ongoing thing of the black vote. Oh. And the big thing is, there is a different conversation between particularly younger black people and older, older black, black people. people. And then depending on where you live, like, we're not a monolithic that's what, thing. Yes. Yes. I mean, th- yes. And this is where, just like living in ideas and it's once again i can only speak as a black man about black male issues because i've not lived anyone else's experience but i see that like a lot of people get that i mean a lot of people get put into these boxes a lot of uh, of categories of people get like stereotyped i think the difference between a lot of other groups and us is that like we try to break out for survival, right? Like, I only fight so hard and I only talk so much because if I don't do that, like, I'm putting myself, my offspring, people who look like me, in danger. I feel it's dangerous to have a platform and not talk about these things, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the only thing we should talk about, right? Because we are more than just the race that we were born into, but I think when we get these platforms, we can't be careless about how we use them, right? Like, the person who told me the things about, like, me having to conform was a person of color who had to conform, right? And they were looking out for me in the best way that they knew how. But I also came from a family that gave me a language that that person probably didn't have. Like, my parents didn't grow up in this country, And so my idea, their idea of blackness is very different from someone who did grow up in this country. Um, But yeah, yeah. 
I love this conversation. <laughs> uh, so speaking of, um, how did you, because I think that's an interesting thing, like your journey with Labyrinth. And I've been, I've kind of really been analyzing a lot of things lately. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I try to share what I've learned, but we all have to learn these things on our own. But kind of the idea of, well, there's different ways to approach acting. Like one is just kind of audition for everything and work on your craft and see what happens. And that's definitely a part of it is like if you're auditioning, the more you audition, the more likely you're going to get something. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa. <laughs> but... uh <laughs> But the idea of kind of building community and working that way and getting to know people, which sounds like what you did with Labyrinth in that you did like a lot of different things. And did you like without knowing what the outcome would be? Ultimately, very great like outcome. But how did you navigate that like working like some of the business you said you were house managing yeah. stuff like that how did you uh hold on to the acting during that time like how did you hold on to the you know what i mean because yeah. i think that's a fear yeah and i've had this conversation with mike recently yeah about i'm currently not represented um and join the club yeah and i on the one hand i like i'm meeting some people and there's some cool conversations and but uh, there's another part of me that kind of wants to do a different thing and you know and there's different schools of thought on that but I think your story kind of speaks to like there are different lanes that can in fact still lead to the same goal I mean or in some cases like not to, or in some cases, take you to places where mm -hmm. you kind of don't expect to get that everyone right. kind of is aiming towards and you get there in this unconventional way. And I think like. And you, when you said that you actually had your, your hand higher, hand meaning higher. like you, like sometimes I had a teacher talk about that recently. Like sometimes when you're when you sometimes when you set a like it's good to be specific and everything yeah but sometimes the goal that you're setting sometimes can be limited like you can be so much yeah well because we as young people are sold a bill of goods right like that success looks like a specific thing mm -hmm. and you know i wasn't achieving success in that way and so there were parts of me that was like i'm going to leave i'm not good enough i'm not successful i'm 21 i've not won my oscar this is bull like all this like bullshit narrative right because like 21 is too old right, right. i'm going to retire i'm done I'm finding a new career um all this nonsense that you tell yourself and i think Circling back to like my journey with Labyrinth, it was, I got around Labyrinth out of need. I needed to identify as a human being and also as an artist, right? And so I went to the place where I identified the most. 
And because it was something that I had not seen in the world, I was so grateful just to be in space that I was willing to do anything just to stay there. Not to be a member, not to be cast in anything, but I was like, there's so much life in this room that like, even if it means I'm like sweeping the floors, even if it means I'm like tearing tickets, I'm volunteering, like I'm around so much life in a period of my my life where I was like, I don't, I don't know what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And what that allowed to happen is like, there were all these people around who were like, I want to be an actor. I want to blah, blah. How can I become a company member? And because I was diligent and working with a pure heart, people saw that. And they allowed me to be a part of experiences that like an audition could not get you mm-hmm. to be in a room with the caliber of actors that are members of labyrinth but also the peripheral family of labyrinth was like next level like Mm -hmm. i i didn't go to acting school i grew up in the city and i've learned the craft of acting through doing and through watching other people and in my early to mid 20s i saw the best of the best work in rehearsal rooms i saw them fail I saw them succeed. I saw like things fall apart and things come back together again. And so I learned to do shows from like watching and like tearing tickets and seeing a show a hundred times because like I had to be there to open and close the theater as a house manager. So I got to see these journeys of these people because I didn't wasn't because I didn't want to be an actor. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to sing. I wanted to be an artist. But I also knew that what I had to offer at that moment was not my skill as an actor. It was to offer support for the other people in the room. And I think that's the important and beautiful thing about community. If you use community for the sake of community, right? Like everyone will eat everyone will not eat at the same time and you need to know your individual role in community like what is it that i can offer to the community and eventually someone's going to be like oh my gosh neil's been at this for eight years maybe it's time for him to eat you know and and halfway was of course i went out i did my own work as an artist and all the artists in the company saw me work and knew that I was up to the task of being in a show. But ultimately it was like halfway bitches was my time to eat. Mm -hmm. You know, I had put in a lot of work and showed that I was a great performer outside of the context of labyrinth. And so people took, had faith in me, you know, that's what community is for. It's not for, I feel like community is not for, especially an artistic community, it's not so much for the working. It's for a place to go when you're not, when you don't have the job, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it's a family more than it is. Because, like, we, the way we create work, the way that work is, like, created in the company for the company is such a, it's such a spiritual, it's, it's a spiritual process. It's a, familial process we hate each other we love each other we marry each other we get babies are born like yeah i'm now that we're talking about it i'm like oh my god i'm really grateful to be a part of this thing but yeah community you know 
It's also interesting. I am a teaching artist as well for the Park Avenue Armory where I've created another, I've entered in another family there. Um, and there's a Bilty Jones movement piece that's happening called Deep Blue Sea. And it's an indictment of community, right? Like we were just creating some lesson plans around it. And what the piece attempts to do is like just dissect community and the good and the bad of community. Something that I pulled from the themes of it is like, you know, it's great to have community for the reasons I just said, but sometimes community is bad if there's not a singleness of purpose. And all the communities that I'm a part of just have this singleness of purpose. We all need, we're all these like wonky gypsies who need a place to lay our heads. Yeah. And do you consider yourself, or I know you have a relationship with shelter too, like kind of what, how how long do you go back with them? Because it's interesting because I definitely, that they're celebrating 10 years now and the conversation is that they're having right now. I've stepped away from for a minute just because I was, you know, yeah. focusing. like I, But now I'm like kind of at a point where, okay, maybe maybe there's something I can do to help with some of the, I don't know, I'm there to help. But uh, basically they're having the question of, you know, looking ahead another 10 years and after 10 years, kind of what do they want to be? But they are, I think, very much a gem also. Like, and I feel like that's like a strong thing. And it is something that I've been going to because I feel like it's a another great community. It's a shelter. Um, and it's a place to go and yeah, like work the craft of acting or writing. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what I was, I don't have a pen on that, but yeah, just kind of. Yeah. I mean, I've known shelter for as long as I've known Mike. Mm -hmm. So that's like 2012, 2013. Um, and I'm not a member of shelter, but I've collaborated with them. And I'll say this about like, Every organization, like, if you're not having those questions every five years, right? then, like, you're complacent, right? So they're, I feel like the fact that they've lasted 10 years and they're having these conversations, so healthy, so needed, mm -hmm. you know, nothing can exist as it is forever. The great theater, the group theater fell apart. Like, all these iconic theater companies, they didn't last for very long because... I feel like the needs of the world change, and, change, mm -hmm. right? Like Labyrinth was in 1992 was the Latino actors base. Then it became Labyrinth, right? And then it had, a, you know, it had a, another change and now it's having another change. And I feel like every 10, every five, 10 years, that's going to happen. That's just the nature of our business that's just the nature of any business. I mean, but especially art because like it's ephemeral and like we're not tied down to contracts. It's not like I'm on a soap opera and I have a 10 year right. contract, right. right? It's like, well, this year I'm super available to help out and do things and to do theater. But next year I may get the series regular, 
which takes me out of New York, you know? So the, the face of the theater company then changes all the time. And, you know, I think Shelter's in a healthy, healthy, healthy place. And also curious, because I know, I know about it. I know you did the, you did the Labyrinth Intensive. Yes. Michael, did, did you guys meet at that intensive? Is that how you and Michael met? Or I took the intensive and then I went to his intensive as an assistant. And so here's a question for you. <laughs> what is the intensive? Anyone who's taken the intensive will say this. It is a week of workshops. And there's this magical element to it that no one can explain. But like, it comes to you when you need it. Mm -hmm. Like the intensive itself comes into your life when you need it and it stays as long as you allow it to. And that sounds really hippy-dippy and wonky, but like, it's just the truth. And there's nothing more I can say about it. Not because I'm being secretive, but because like, it just makes no sense. How many people is it usually? 30. 30 people. So you walk away with like an ensemble mm -hmm. of... The the goal of the intensive ensemble is to create an ensemble. Mm -hmm. Very similar to the way that like Labyrinth started. So the teachers are all Labyrinth, uh, Labyrinth Theater Company members or Labyrinth adjacent. And you basically train over the week on how to create theater. So if you're an actor, you're going to write. If you are a singer, you're going to move like everyone does everything and their presentations at the end, which are kind of cool. But the the real gift of it is you walk away with the community of 29 other artists and the Labyrinth Theater Company members who show up to the intensive. And so, you you know, a lot of people talk about it like jumpstarting their New York artistic life not career so much but like now you're connected to 29 other resources right like new writers writers you've never heard of that you are a fan of now or like directors and so there's no excuse for not creating work now because you have this like rolodex of people you can just call up who will be willing to drop anything to work with you i mean my first summer i did the intensive back in 2011 and some of the collaborators that i worked with that summer i still work with now like they're my family mm -hmm. um so yeah that's that's all i got for the intensive <laughs> ensemble you should apply and take it uh yeah I, I told you a little bit i did um the black arts institute this summer yeah and that was again one of those things where it was a very interesting experience because i did a play at the National Black Theater, uh -huh. and then they, um, yeah, like the artistic director told me they were still looking for a few people for that, and I was like looking at my schedule. There were some things I was hoping to book, which did not happen. So I was like, huh, you know, like I don't know how I'm gonna be able to afford to do this, but I don't know when I'm gonna be able to take five weeks. And like immerse myself around, like centered around like black actors and writers and directors. So I should do this. Yeah. And yeah, it was really cool to 
to kind of be a sponge. Um, and I was like the oldest one probably there. So it's like interesting, like the older I get, the more of a beginner's mindset. Like I want to, like I believe in, Yeah. you know? Yeah. Like not to say you don't take what you know, like with you, but to have a beginner's mindset, you can just, you can grow so much more. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know your history with training, but like. I didn't, you know, I've taken like master classes and workshops, but I've never done anything comprehensive. Like, and so every experience I go into, I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing here? There's Juilliard, there's Yale, what's going to happen? And so like, I am, every experience is an opportunity to learn. I mean, Halfway Bitches, like 17 of the dopest actors in New York and the first rehearsal I was like, you're a fraud. Go home. <laughs> They're going to cast you. Who's around? Someone else has a better Nigerian accent. The stage manager, he looked perfect for this role. Oh my. And so like the best thing that I could do for myself was like, listen and do the work mm -hmm. that like in every, in every scenario. Yeah. I come in with like my little ego every now and then where I'm like, I know how to, but very quickly that gets knocked out. Yeah. You know, when the work comes into play. So, like, being a sponge, I think, is something that we should continue to yeah. be and walk in every experience. It comes like in waves, the, though. You know, like, the there are days oh where you're God. like, yeah, man, I'm feeling... I'm, you know, I, I got this. But, like, also, like, the universe makes sure that I learn the lesson that, like, bitch, you don't have this. It's also funny, like, with acting, I feel when, <laughs> like, when you start feeling yourself too much on stage is, like, when you're, like get lost for it like you'll get like uh-huh back to reality real quick because you're like oh i was feeling myself and i wasn't listening <laughs> like <laughs> you know there are there are moments though where like it's interesting and i'm probably never gonna work after i say this there, there are moments though where you're in a piece that you i don't do this now because like once again, I'm trying to stay on mission, but there were times where I would book things that I wasn't so passionate about. And I would walk into a room and I would figure out that like nobody was passionate about it, like a four hour poem that you had to somehow theatricalize, right? And those, I think like ego, not necessarily ego, but like your, your knowledge of how to craft work then comes into play. All the things that you've learned over time because there's scenarios where you kind of just really have to look out for your, for yourself and your well-being. I think like people don't talk enough about that part of the artist journey, right? It's not just, it's great to book work, but like, what is your life like once you book the work, right? How do you sustain for 60 performances? I was really lucky in Halfway Bitches that I was working with family. Mm -hmm. And we all took care of each other. But there have been times where I've been working with other artists where like it's just not the safest environment. Yeah. Not everyone's taking care of everyone. And so you have to be on guard the whole time and craft really great work that can kind of stand on its own. Yeah. Um, for your own for your own artistic integrity, for your own mental health. Like this is 
I've been really, really, really blessed to work on projects that either I could stand behind or I could work through. But like there are moments, there have been one or two projects where I'm like, this is, uh, I don't feel very good. I don't feel, and I have to get through this run and I have to do this in front of an audience. And, you know, mental health and like just health in general, self-care is so important for the artist because I have a friend who works in, who's a lawyer and he was like, I don't know how you do this job. You stand in front of someone every day and you get judged. It's a job interview every day. And I'm like, never thought of it that, that way. That's why was this I, person talking about auditioning or uh, he was talking about auditioning. He was talking about doing shows. It's, you know, like you're standing in front of an audience of hundreds of people who like either come to enjoy art or they come to criticize art. But like, you have to deliver something like the pressure's on. And so like I had to learn to deal with anxiety in a healthy way. I had to deal with, I had to learn to deal with like physically being in pain and still having to do a show and, you know, or like missing out on family events because it's a long run of a show and you don't have an understudy. Like those are, it's important that we do that self work. Mm -hmm. And then also, especially bodies of color on stage i'm a huge advocate for like don't accept the job unless you've read everything and you've had conversations about everything because you essentially especially if you're dealing with a, a director who's not lived your experience mm -hmm. you have to then troubleshoot a performance before it, I it gets this, into rehearsal yeah i had this recently um i saw you when I was being considered to replace yeah, a character. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, after all of that, I was not. Um, but one of the conversations that we did have, I brought up because we read through a thing and basically the role that I would have replaced, I was replacing a, would have been replacing a white actor. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like the writer director was like, it doesn't have to, you know, mm -hmm. all of this, but in the play, then it would have been an interracial relationship. And there's like an argument that this character and her are having. And he's like, basically she goes off and then he's like, yeah. And then you put like, you're mad. You punch the wall. And so we're like going, and then we're talking about like after we had like a conversation and I was like, so just so you know, like if you cast me, I can't be, I mean, basically if you have me be violently angry in that situation, it's going to come across a whole different way. Like it's like a, a weapon basically yeah. like, um, so yeah. So yeah, I, I think though it would have been interesting to navigate that. Like, I think it would have brought a different layer to the story. Um, but yeah, you, you have to troubleshoot mm -hmm. because not very many people think on those things. Right. Like, Especially someone who says like race is not an issue in this in this situation. I mean, they've clearly not really thought about the fact that race is an issue when you put a black body on stage. It says something. Yeah. And like it really sucks. And I'm not. Yeah. And that's it, like something where it's like I'm not willing to just play when it's not about when this is not what this story is about for somebody to see the play and be like. Yeah, that guy's probably an abusive black guy because blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Speaking of 
you remember the Jimi Hendrix movie uh, that, well, it wasn't a Jimi Hendrix movie, but Andre 3000 was in? Yeah. I, I never, didn't see it. I never saw it either because they added a scene in where Jimi Hendrix was abusive with this particular girlfriend. Mm-hmm. That girlfriend is still alive. That was never even an allegation. Like, she's like, that never happened. He was never abusive. This director, writer, whatever, like, for license, thought it's good to write a scene where Jimi Hendrix was abusive when that's that not him at all. Yeah. Like, that's that's why I never saw the movie. As much as I love 3000 and I love Jimi Hendrix, I was like, I can't support that. Yeah. It's... <sighs> This conversation has so many layers because, I mean, it's also really hard to, it's actually not really hard, but I think we're made to believe that in some instances, it's like hard to separate the artist from the human being. Um, I like try to prepare some like canned answers to things that you would ask me like, who inspires you? And I was like, well, um, I remember going to a meeting with a manager a couple years ago and the question of whose career would you like to have came up and I said, Bill Cosby. <laughs> and she was, was like, how could you say that? And I was like, wait, look, did, did he not sell you Jello? Did you not let him in your house? Pretty much every day of the week of my life. There was something Bill Cosby on TV, right? I have to, I have to, me, Neil Tyrone Pritchard, I have to separate what Bill Cosby did, which is completely terrible, which is like inexcusable. He should be in jail. But the legacy that he created did so much for me, Neil Tyrone Pritchard, this little black boy from Staten Island who grew up in a household where, you know, I was taught life was a certain way, right? And it was in line with what I saw on the Cosby show. And it wasn't so much in line with like Juice mm-hmm. or Boys in the Hood. Like I needed an alternative. And Bill Cosby was that alternative for a long time. And so like I have to separate that. And then somebody was like, well, what about R. Kelly? I was like, R. Kelly's legacy? Trash. Right trash i'm not separating that shit because like his legacy was trash Mm -hmm. and he's also a trash-ass human being but like bill cosby is a trash-ass human being with this like legacy that helped me Mm -hmm. you know it just i think that's where the nuance of this conversation just doesn't doesn't happen and then also how we how we're quick to cancel but the Bill issue, Cosby, but we've not made a list of all the Harvey Weinstein movies right. that we yeah. now have to boycott, right? Like, yeah. mute R. Kelly, but like, I'm gonna need a little Cosby show every now and then. Like, I, I'm sorry. I hope you. <laughs> I'm never going to work in this. <laughs> but so, but my thing with uh, Jimmy was that that never even happened, though. So it's not even that separating. Yeah. The. It's like just somebody taking license to like make <laughs> to like add in a negative yes. depiction of a black man. Like that's that. Yeah. As if we need any more of those. But the flip side, of, like of the same play, like the role that I was originally up for, it was like a ayahuasca shaman 
slash basically he had misgivings about casting me in that because then the one black dude in the play would have been kind of a drug dealer. But to me, I'm like, the flip side of that is like, but to me, I'm like, I don't mind playing a drug dealer if it's a three-dimensional character. Like, that's a real thing. Yeah. And I don't, personally, in my worldview, I don't, I have less problem with like a drug dealer, especially when you're talking about like weed, ayahuasca, or something like that versus these pharmaceutical overlords, you know, like versus all these white collar criminals, (laughs) all these, you know, like what's the criminal, you know? Yeah. So who's, who's bad? I feel you. I feel you on that one. Yeah. And that's a complicated thing. I mean, not that I would ever play drug dealer, (laughs) but once again, I mean, it goes back to the conversation of like, what are we like? The question that keeps coming up in the last couple weeks after halfway closed is like, what am I trying? What am I trying to do? Right? Am I trying to push this narrative forward of like black people being three dimensional, black people being moral, black people being just full human beings, right? Or am I like? staying where we are right or am i pushing it backwards and i think i think there are not enough people who are willing to like stand in the gap and say no i'm not going to take the work i think there's a difference between someone trying to build a career and someone trying to book work and i'm not interested in just booking work Mm -hmm. for the sake of like saying i've worked Mm -hmm. like if it's not feeding into my mission well, then we can sit down. But I'm also not going to allow people to say things to me in rooms so that they can like, oh, he's one of the good ones. Right. We, Oh, he's one of the good ones. We'll give him this role. It's uh, That's counterproductive. And the, the argument that keeps coming up is like, well, you have to get in to change things. And I'm like, well, yeah, mm, that's how people get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what I think about politics, too. It's like the too many politics like if you sell your soul too many too many times along the way what's left when you get in there like what's left uh-huh. if you've sold it all away already yeah Ugh. um you know so. i don't want to sell my soul i just got it back <laughs> <laughs> uh do you like can you articulate what your mission is In some terms, yes. Mm. My current mission is like, I want to bring dignity to everyone who can identify with any part of me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, if it's being a black male, if it's being first generation, if it's being dark skinned, if it's being full bodied, like, when they look at me, I don't want the things that they feel ashamed about to be a joke. I want to bring dignity to those things. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the journey, I guess the journey has begun, begun for me to like find and love those things in myself to also identify those things that kind of the world doesn't understand or 
or I've been grappling with for most of my life to identify those things, to come to peace with those things. And when those things are presented out into the world to like elevate those things in a way that makes it glorious to just like, I'm on stage a lot of the times I'm like the largest guy in both height and size, in color. My manner is sometimes different from a lot of the people that I work with. And like, you know, I want people to come to the theater or like turn on the television and see themselves. And that's like, that's that like hokey thing that everyone says, but also like I needed that for me growing up. And I was able to find shades of that in other actors, other performers. And so that's what I want to be and do. And there's a huge responsibility in that, right? Like, it's not enough to get through the door. It's like, once you sit at the table, what do you have to say? Mm -hmm. Like, what seat do you sit in? I want to sit at the head of the table. Mm -hmm. Like, I really do. I want people to look at me. I want them to respect me. You know, in the state that I'm in. And all the things that for, you know, for a long time we were told that we couldn't be and we shouldn't be, you know. Why can't I be the president in a film? I have no desire for politics. But, like, why can't I sing opera? Why, Like, why... Yeah, why can't I play a drug dealer with a three-dimensional storyline and it not be attached to my race, but more so the decision that I've made, right? That's what I'm really, really interested in. And I feel like people are starting to do that, to turn on the television and see the Issa Rays and the Donald Glovers who are like the kids I grew up with yeah right like yeah. who are more in line with like the brand that I know to be a person of color that there's there's not always a fire right like, right that like black is like beautiful and quirky and like funky and interesting and it's no different from it's different but like there's more that we have alike as a human race than like that we have differences. I think those are things that we like create, right? Systems that were created for us to believe those things. And the more that I can step on stage and people see a human being, right? And can relate to something. I think that's my mission. I mean, they're in halfway bitches. I had an accent. I like, I'm a, I am who I am. I look like what I look like. And I feel like I could walk away from that production with my head held high because my character had such grace and dignity, even in situations where, you know, <laughs> where he was out there doing some things. It's like, wow. Okay. So I'm also not playing into the magical Negro stereotype, right? Here's a person who's like together and like connected to God, but he also has this thing that like, you know, makes him imperfect. And that's what I'm interested in seeing. Yeah. For all of us. Right. And it takes artists like you and me and the people who actually want to do this thing, who have these missions 
to present it to the world, not just not just white people, but give the possibility to people, other people of color who've just not seen that, who didn't know that that was an option for them. How, I mean, how sad is that, right? That like, there's some people who are not pursuing things because they just don't know that it's an option. I yeah. was really lucky to grow up in a household where they were like, we want you to be a teacher. We want you to be a doctor. And then I started, I was an actor and they were like, okay, then go be a really great actor. And when they saw me, they were like, okay, this is what you're called to do. Continue doing that. And on the days where I'm like, I don't want to do this. They're like, no, 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 you're called to do this. Go do it. It's not like it's putting money in their pockets, but it's also bringing like a level of dignity and like, once again, being a first generation like my parents came to this country so that I could have the option to dream in the way that I do. So when I step on stage, I honor that. I carry my ancestors with me. Here we go with the spiritual stuff. But like, it's the truth. Yeah. It's my truth to, I'm rambling a little, but my parents are from Liberia and that's the country founded by former American slaves. And so to think that like, Parts of my family Made survived the, the middle passage, mm -hmm. went back to Africa, survived like whatever diseases that they had there at the time. All for my family then to come back to this country is like a remarkable story and journey. And like that runs through my veins. That's who I am. They had to survive for me to exist. And so... But that is the, that's also the story of most people, but definitely people in color. Like, where the world at large, but definitely in this country, you know, feels like this, like, mass extermination of people of color. And the fact that, like, the people before you survived that for you to be here is, there's so much responsibility in that. I'll get off my soapbox. Oh, no, that's <laughs> great, though. Um, I think we, we could go on and on, but I think, um, I also don't have a key for upstairs, <laughs> so I got to check on her. Um, but we have to have, we have to have more conversations offline and on, uh, but I usually close with asking, well, one, is there anything else you want to talk about? No, <laughs> I mean everything, but yeah, you know. Um, and then I guess, are there any final words of wisdom or just parting thoughts you want to leave right now? Obviously, this is an ongoing conversation, but maybe I think it's good to speak to the person um, who is doubting or is like uh, struggling with reaching like as far as they could reach, you know? Yeah. That's a huge, that that's a huge <laughs> ask, but I, I'll say this, that like, remember why you do what you do. I think a, finding a strong why is the most important thing. Because on the days, and there will be many days that are not pretty, 
on the days when things are not pretty, when they're not working out in the way that you want them to, you'll know that you're not actually fighting or doing any of this stuff for you. That like life is about service, right? And the more we lean into our service, once again, it doesn't mean life is going to be easy, but it does mean that there's a direction. And in the quiet of your own room or on the train or wherever you meditate or roam, when there's quiet, you, you know, you'll find a little bit more direction towards that. And I think that is on the days where I am in line with my purpose, on the days where I am answering the call, whatever that call may be. I'm not happy, but I am content. And so I guess the thing I would leave is like, find your why. Don't deviate from that why. Because once you know, you know. And if you're not living out that why, it'll haunt you everywhere you go. <laughs> it's funny. You, you made me think about this earlier, but the the interview thing, like somebody like, how do you do what you do? You're constantly judged. And then the idea of being of service. And I don't know if it was this week or last week, but I've had some good times auditioning lately. And sometimes it's like, like the idea of like releasing outcomes. Um, but I really have enjoyed it sometimes when I know that I did a really good audition and that showed up was like a human being in the room with like the people behind the other side mm -hmm. of the desk reader or whatever. And like, know that like, Cause you can see it sometimes, not, not like the fine line of like feeling yourself too much, but just knowing, like, if you're not attached to the outcome, you just go in and do your best work. Like if you can see like a smile, like you, if you can kind of tell that like yeah. people got some joy out of the experience. Yeah. Um, Cause newsflash is not about you. Yeah. It's yeah. not about you. If it was about you, you could do it in your basement mm -hmm. and still be happy. Right. Like, we're performers, we're artists, it's a communal thing, right? Yeah. And unless it's hitting someone else, and I feel like it's resonating with someone else, then I'm not really doing the job. Mm -hmm. So, yes. Yes on that. <laughs> well, thank you very much, man. I think this is a, this is a great conversation. I appreciate you being here, uh, sharing. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate your work and many more conversations to be had. Yes, yes. Um, thank you. So that was my conversation with Neil Tyrone Pritchard. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed having it. I realized as I was uh, listening back a little bit to this episode that I never asked him where to find him. So you can find him on Instagram at Neil Tyrone 87. The links for that will be in the show notes as well as the website for Labyrinth Theater Company. And, uh, yeah, hope you enjoyed that conversation. It's crazy how much things have changed since then, but I think a lot of the things we were talking about are still extremely relevant, like showing up in service as artists and uh, just being of service as people, taking care of each other, being kind, all of that good stuff. So, as I mentioned, I shared with you uh, my sober journey and if you've listened for a while, I've talked about mental health and the importance of working on that and just as part of your health regimen. 
So um, not to be preachy at all, but just, you know, take care of yourself, whatever that means for you. For me, I felt for kind of a long time that drinking was maybe getting in the way a little bit for me. And the interesting thing about that is that it, for me, wasn't always that excessive. It's just there's some things I really want to do. And so there's some things that I have to not do in order to achieve and really go for what I really want to do. So so that's my path. Um, what's yours? We have a lot of time right now to reflect. A lot of us do. Um, and thank you to everybody who's still is working in grocery stores, who's uh, working in hospitals, who's first responders, uh, you know, our mail services, just everybody that's out here working, making our water safe. Uh, everybody, thank you for the work that you're doing. My fellow artists, thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, and you listening, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for allowing me to share. I just appreciate all of you, whoever you are. I appreciate you. I love you. Thank you. And I hope that you keep doing the things whatever those are for you, and share them with the world. We need your contribution. We need your perspective. So have a good one. Take care. Be safe. And I'll talk to you soon. Peace. We're going to set you free.